Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Workman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. super early morning wake-up call. Thanks for tuning in on this Monday, November the 4th. Hope you had a great weekend. Ours was uh, packed with uh, a bunch of youth soccer. A lot of miles on the road. And uh, a busy weekend ahead of uh, a busy week. Um, We are still working out some logistics uh, for the rest of this week. Hopefully uh, to be able to do the show live from Amsterdam. Uh, I'll be over there for about a week. And uh, so we're... We're going to see if we can pull this off. Uh, we had some issues this summer when we tried to do our European tour. Uh, we will see if we're able to uh, to 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 get these kinks worked out. Um, we had some gear um, blow up basically <laughs> when we were in Europe this summer, and uh, don't want to see that happen again. So we're trying to make sure we've got all of that. Uh, set up and ready to go and uh, we're looking to see if we can if we can get some of that done um, but uh, we'll let you know if not we will uh, we'll see you back next week um, this weekend was the end of the u17 World Cup for the u17s for both uh, the US and Canada quite frankly both were terrible both were um, just dreadful performances and the 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 public sentiment over the performance piggybacking off of the US men's national team's uh, shortcomings under Greg Berhalter piggybacking off of where the US men's national team has been really leading into Trinidad and Tobago in October of 2017 uh, and since. um, There's a lot of discontentment amongst the uh, American soccer uh, public in terms of what is going on with the Federation. The Federation is is a rudderless federation there is no direction um, that is leading us out of the malaise uh, there there's very little communications from u.s soccer when you get them they are head scratching decisions at best um, it is it is pretty much a federation that has laid down and capitulate it fully to Major League Soccer and doesn't seem to do anything unless MLS needs something done. Other, other than that, they're just kind of, you know, existing on paper as a federation, but they're not really doing anything to fix our issues, not really doing anything to solve our problems. Our U-17, U-17 um, national team was terrible. The coaching had these players ill-prepared for the challenge of the 2017, I mean, excuse me, 2019 U-17 World Cup. Um, it was it was dreadful. And these players are playing, growing up in, in environments that are not preparing them for the international stage, plain and simple. Um, you know, there's been a few that have tried to defend the Federation and saying, well, we have more players pr- playing professionally than we did before. You can, you can pay someone. It doesn't mean they're doing a good job. It also doesn't mean that the environment that they are in is better. It just means you're paying them. I mean, if, if I have a bad worker, let's say I run a company and I have a, I have a bad worker. I give them a raise. And you ask me, well, why did you give them a raise? Well, I wanted our company be, to be known for paying higher wages. Did, the, did that worker earn it? No. I just paid more for bad performance. 
And it's the same kind of thing here. Just because you have players playing in professional academies, some of them on professional contracts, homegrown contracts, doesn't actually mean that they're any better than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. It just means we're paying them. We're paying them to be bad. We're paying them, in some cases, to be worse. That That's the same kind of mentality of, hey, we deserve to be in Major League Soccer because our bank account is big enough. And, and, and we're willing to pay the fee. That doesn't mean you deserve it. It just means that you paid to cut in line. You paid to get access to the private club, the country club. It's these environments, the Development Academy. I think it was, I think, I think the idea in the very beginning was, had, had good intentions. I really do. I think, I think you look back at where U.S. soccer was and they were like, hey, we, we need to do something to try to create better standards and some level of standard across the federation. The problem was it was all artificial from the beginning. Everything was arbitrary and artificial. It was very much in the execution of the idea. Major League Soccer for youth soccer, meaning the same principles of paying a lot of money to get access. Arbitrary rules, not quality of play, not how good is your team on the field? How, 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 how well do you do your job at developing players? But are you, is your organization big enough? Do you have enough players in your club? Can you pay the fees? Can you look legit enough for us, the gatekeepers, to let you in? So in an effort to try to create a higher level of play and standards, we focused on the wrong metrics yet again. When you see these decisions repeating over and over again, it's something that we were getting into a lot last week. And, and I, I have to say it right here off the top of the show today. We have a leadership deficiency at U.S. soccer. When the U.S. men's national team failed to qualify for the World Cup. The entire executive staff, board of directors, president, vice president should have tendered resignations. They should have mea culpa, our bad, we didn't get it right, it's time for someone else. The problem is those in charge have created a gatekeeper system that makes it very difficult for reform-minded or people with different ideas than theirs, individuals, to get in and make changes. They have set up a perpetuating leadership deficiency by creating an insular system and structure. And we're talking about at the leadership level. And then that mentality has filtered its way up and down the, the, the organization. So you have time and time again, a failure in leadership, not being held accountable instead of thinking of their positions as being stewards of the game in service of all of American soccer, we have people in the board, people running day-to-day operations at U.S. Soccer House that are in it 
for themselves. They're in it for control. They're in it for identity. They're in it for power. They're not in it for the game as a primary reason for being there. We have so much potential, so far to go, but we can get there quickly with better leadership. It was refreshing to see after the failure of the U-17s to get out of the group stage, they finished dead last, two humiliating losses and a draw, and in none of the matches did they look good at all. That coach should resign effective immediately, today. Turn in his resignation and just say, I I couldn't get the job done. And move on. Nothing personal, but you didn't get the job done. It was refreshing to see the the public response, even from those in the media who have been slow to criticize over the years, the Federation, Major League Soccer, decisions that have been made that have detrimental effects on the country. It was refreshing to see them start to speak up and just say, look, enough is enough. This is absurd. We're going backwards. We don't even have coaches in our youth national team programs except at the U-17 level. And that guy, obviously, is not up for the job. We have a long way to go. I do think we can change this. I do think we can change it quickly, but it's going to take new leadership, top to bottom. So there's an opportunity in February to start that process. All the U.S. soccer members who get to vote in the vice presidential election will have an opportunity to vote. We'll see who the candidates are and we'll see who can speak up and lead a movement of change. Because the people in charge right now are not getting it done. Is it just going to be more of the same? I don't know. We'll have to see. We will have to see. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. And uh, go there, place an order, use promo code DWSHOW, and you'll get 10% off of your next order. Happy birthday weekend for... One of the co-founders, Adelaide, who uh, had a birthday, shared her birthday with Yael Averbush, a friend of the show. Um, two women that are are forging a better future for women's soccer and soccer in general in this country. So I hope they had a great birthday weekend. And you could make a great start to your week by going to ducktickbrand.com and placing your order using promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off that order today. We'll be right back after this.
great week, great start to your week on this Monday, November the 4th. A little later today, beginning on an airplane flying across the Atlantic to uh, Amsterdam for a week. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, hopefully we'll be able to uh, to bring the show to you live from Amsterdam. Uh, if not, I'm sure we'll be able to get something out uh, to everyone, even if it's not the full show. Um Article that came out, uh, I believe, last week in the Athletic was looking at um, the uh, the Sacramento Republic, and I want to just go through this article today and kind of look at some of the issues because these these highlight the issues that we're seeing across the federation. We've created a gatekeeper system. That means that we have people that that are in charge of access to certain organizations, certain levels, certain leagues, etc. And they they are free to arbitrarily decide who's in and who's out. So you cannot gain access on your own. You have to gain the favor of someone. Um and uh, there's so many reasons why that is a horrible system. Uh, bribery is is one uh, where you are opening yourselves up to uh, to bribery, etc. Uh, with the addition of Sacramento Republic FC, Major League Soccer will gain a new squad of players, a new stadium, and a, a new home city to its ranks. It will also add another billionaire investor. That would be Ron Burkle, the L.A. private equity mogul and Pittsburgh Penguins owner, who is also majority owner of the Sacramento team that MLS announced a week ago to begin play in 2022. An MLS team seems like a normal investment for Burkle to be making on its face. After all, plenty of billionaires the world over own sports teams, but MLS ownership is unique in several aspects or respects including the one big one. The league has never turned a profit in its history. For big money investors like Burkle, what's the appeal? The answer is multifaceted and reflective of the complexity of modern sports economics. Burkle and others aren't merely buying teams. They're buying into profitable companion businesses as well. At its simplest, an MLS club's seasonal bottom line is one piece of a wider investment. I want to make one slight correction there. MLS doesn't have clubs. MLS is the club. They are buying into a private club. They operate teams. They're like franchises. None of them are are independent or individual clubs. They just grant themselves licenses to operate teams. Um, But the club is Major League Soccer. The entire league is a club, like like a private sporting club. Burkle didn't buy into the league just to operate Sacramento Republic FC. It may be a big reason, but another one is surely that he and other MLS owners are also automatically made investors in an entity called Soccer United Marketing. Outside of the football world, it's not a big-name business, but within the soccer ecosystem, it's well-known as MLS's cash cow. Some, another... uh, the abbreviated kind of name for Soccer United Marketing is the powerful, profitable, and somewhat controversial marketing business jointly owned by the league's team owners, with MLS Commissioner Don Garber serving as its top executive. Some sells the broadcast media and market rights not only for MLS, but also for many other soccer matches, tournaments, and events sanctioned by the U.S. Soccer Federation, which is the nation's governing body for the sport. U.S. national team matches, Mexico national team matches on U.S. soil, and tournaments such as CONCACAF Gold Cup, all of these generate revenue for some. Because some is controlled by MLS owners, its revenues can help finance MLS operations, an arrangement that has drawn criticism that some unfairly boosts the league at the expense of the game's overall growth in the United States. A charge that Garber and other MLS officials deny. Why would they admit to that? I mean, that is what it does, period. Critics point out, for example, that U.S. soccer gets set annual payment from some, regardless if the U.S. national teams are in a spot in the prestigious and lucrative World Cup. 
In an economic sense, though, some revenue is a crucial component for MLS owners, helping justify their investment in their teams from an accounting standpoint. There's no question that some and revenues generated from that are something that the teams are able to dip into, said Patrick Rich, Rich, a professor and director of the sports business program within the Olin Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. How much money some generates and the degree to which it finances MLS operations hasn't been officially disclosed, but Forbes last year estimated the first figure at $350 million annually and valued it at a $2 billion enterprise. The attraction for MLS owners isn't just in those current figures, though, but also in their growth potential, unlike teams, which are mostly limited to their chief revenue streams, to game day merchandise ticket corporate sponsorship sales, some is free to generate additional significant money through whatever avenues happen to come up as soccer continues its upward growth trajectory in the U.S. Its potential isn't limited the same way soccer is limited, said Andrew Zimbalist, a sports economist at Smith College in Massachusetts. Owning a sports team in the U.S., you're buying something that cannot expand the way a normal company can expand. Some has no boundaries, and it has much more potential than any single team. Uh, Before we go on, this article made mention to the relationship between Soccer United Marketing and the Federation. This entire business organization did not exist when major league soccer was created. MLS was created in the mid nineties and five, six years later it was folding. Like it was going under and the Federation basically worked with major league soccer to create an arrangement, a financial deal to prop up the league. Now, at the time when your top professional league looks like it's going under, it's understandable that the Federation would want to keep its top professional league from folding. The problem isn't that it tried to help. The problem is the way it helped. It gave Major League Soccer the ability to infiltrate the Federation and in perpetuity leech off of the Federation for decades. Monies that could have gone into programming within U.S. soccer is going to Soccer United Marketing because of this deal. There was no sunset on the deal. There was no automatic phase-out. The Federation could choose to end the deal in 2022 as of now, unless an extension gets signed before then. However, there's not an automatic cutoff for the Federation. So what happened in that deal is this second company gets birthed. Don Garber becomes CEO of Soccer United Marketing while holding the, at the same time, the title of commissioner of Major League Soccer. These are two separate LLCs that the investors in Major League Soccer are also the same investors in a second company, Soccer United Marketing. MLS does not own some. The investors that own MLS are the same investors that own some. U.S. soccer does not own any portion of some. So 
So when we look at this arrangement and we look at the rest of American soccer, that's where we start to see issues pop up. Governance, collusion, it is basically built-in bribery. There's a reason why sporting decisions are often neglected in favor of continuing status quo. That's what has to be looked at. That's why we have some of these lawsuits. Back to the article. Some cash can help reconcile a team's balance sheet. It's not the only motivation to buy into the league. Real estate is another long-term investment goal across professional sports, and soccer is no different. For Burkle, who made much of his money investing in grocery chains, the plan in Sacramento centers on a mostly private-financed $252.2 million, 20,000-seat soccer-specific stadium as the anchor of a 240-acre mixed-use entertainment business and residential district to be built on a derelict 19th-century rail, rail yard in the city's downtown. Even though many economists have long been skeptical of sports venues as a wise use of public funds, such downtown stadium and arena districts have become commonplace. Teams or their owners then essentially become landlords for new or redeveloped urban spaces that generate revenue via rents, retail sales, or by flipping property in the district for a profit. Such districts in varying stages of development can be found in markets such as Kansas City, St. Louis, Detroit, Green Bay, Atlanta, San Francisco, and Columbus, Ohio. An enormous such district is underway in the Inglewood neighborhood of Los Angeles, where the NFL's Rams and Chargers will play. Sacramento will soon have two such districts, the rail yard project with the MLS team and the adjacent downtown commons anchored by the golden one center where the NBA's Kings play their home games. Sacramento soccer district plan is typical for that type of project, including housing, retail theaters, parks, museums, and also a medical center and a court building. Private investment is said to top $1 billion in the project, with $33 million in public subsidies approved for the stadium, mostly via tax reimbursements captured via increased property values around the stadium. Districts elsewhere often have deeper public investment, including direct subsidies uh, to the team owners. Teams building facilities these days, it's more about the real estate play and what more you can do with it, Rich said. You're seeing it across sports. All of these ownership groups, it's a large real estate development. They know they can cultivate 365 days a year. MLS now has 24 teams and five more expansion teams on the way that will begin play between 2020 and 2022. Miami, Nashville, Austin, St. Louis, and Sacramento. Each new team's ownership has plans for its own mixed-use district. A 30th market is expected to be announced in the next year or so, but there is no formal timeline for it, the league has said. If the expansion city's district plans are successful, it will mean more revenue for team owners and more justification for the investment, even if the league itself isn't in the black along with many of its teams. While MLS teams and the league don't disclose financial information, data from Forbes' annual MLS team of team valuations shows that 15 of 23 teams studied after the 2017 season, the most recent analysis available, had negative operating income, i.e. financial losses. Teams in the league don't disclose their finances, but MLS has acknowledged that it is not profitable as a whole. League spokesman Dan Quartermanch told The Athletic via email that the Forbes data is useful. Regarding profitability, some MLS teams are profitable while others are not. The the Forbes team valuations are a good barometer to gauge which teams are profitable. 
Now, part of that is built in to the overall macro business plan of Major League Soccer. When MLS was formed, one of the key tenets was we want to control and depress wages. We want to keep them as low as possible. When you look at the the amount of revenue that comes in to Major League Soccer versus the amount of revenue that is paid to players in a in in a ratio or percentage compared to the top leagues around the world. Major League Soccer trails significantly behind the top leagues in the world. Players in Major League Soccer are paid pennies on the dollar often what they could have earned playing overseas. And I don't mean like big leagues overseas. I mean, just if they were good enough, they could go overseas, play for even a smaller team and earn a little bit more money. The The percentage of revenue coming into the league going to players is intentional. These owners are basically using American players and players from smaller, poorer countries in Central and in South America, the Caribbean, to import, to fill the league's coffer with players, and then they drop in what they call designated players into these markets. The Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Steven Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, David Villa. They, they drop in these players into the league, and it, it really started with David Beckham, coming to the LA Galaxy to to basically market a few stars, surround them with a bunch of, in essence, scrubs, and pay them a little bit of money. And when I say a little bit of money, a lot of these players are earning fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. And then you'll have one, maybe two, no more than three players on the team that might earn $3 million, four, five, one, two. And then everyone else is like 100,000, 200,000, 50,000. It's essentially a minor league. It's, it's essentially like a triple A baseball league. And each team is getting, you know, two or three big league players. So they're calling themselves a major league soccer, but they operate like a minor league baseball team. And that's intentional because Major League Soccer may not have have started this way, but once Soccer United Marketing was created and this relationship with the Federation was formed as part of that creation, the focus shifted for Major League Soccer. It went away from the soccer piece and growing the sport to growing the portfolio to be able to have access to Soccer United Marketing. By keeping that money there, they can cry poor in negotiations with players. They can say, our league's not profitable. Our, most of our teams are not profitable. We can't afford to pay you anymore. But they're earning money hand over fist at the same time in Soccer United Marketing. A couple of years ago, after after Copa America 2016, Don Garber earned a double-digit multi-million dollar bonus as CEO of Soccer United Marketing. Meanwhile, its players could play in the league, some of them for 20 years, and not even earn 10% of what he earned in one bonus. This is so far above and beyond. So far above and beyond just Major League Soccer. This whole thing is about Soccer United Marketing. One longtime soccer industry observer likened owning a team to a status symbol investment that pays off financially when it comes time to sell. I would say that in soccer, it often makes sense to compare buying a club to buying a painting, said Simon Cooper, co-author of the book Soccernomics and a sports columnist for the Financial Times newspaper in the UK via email. If you buy a 
a Picasso, it won't pay you an annual return, but there's a good chance that when you come to sell it, it will have appreciated in value and it's a status good that wins you admiration and makes your life more exciting. The revenue from real estate and some help work together uh, together increase individual team value. The average MLS team is worth $240 million, up from about $40 million a decade ago. Well, why is that? If the, if the league's still not earning a profit and its revenues haven't significantly grown, its TV deal is minuscule and has to be bundled with the national team, where's the value? Where's the value for you to go 6x value in 10 years? Hint, it's not in Major League Soccer. It's in them owning a Major League Soccer team to be able to get access to some. Topping the list is Atlanta United at $330 million, closely followed by the Galaxy at $320 million. Also above the $300 million valuation mark are the Seattle Sounders and LAFC. Still, in terms of overall worth, MLS teams remain in the long shadow of the more mature American pro leagues. The average NFL team value is $2.86 billion. It's $1.78 billion in Major League Baseball and $1.87 billion in the NBA and $630 million in the NHL. The 23 MLS teams measured in 2018 were worth a combined $5.5 billion or the same as the Dallas Cowboys on their own. Again, Major League Soccer is AAA baseball with a few Major League Baseball players on their teams. But the point isn't necessarily the size of the business. It's how much growth potential there is. Team values are escalating handsomely, Zimelist said. Soccer is a growing sport. If it's well-managed, it could be on its own a lucrative investment. Forbes valuation numbers are close to some of the real-world MLS sales that have occurred, which illustrate this steady rise in team values. Owners know they can probably make money on their MLS investments if they opt to sell. Take DC United, for instance. Forbes last year valued the club at $265 million, which ranked 10th among MLS teams. According to a report earlier this month in The Athletic, majority owner Eric Thor and fellow investor Jason uh, Levian paid $97 million between 2012 and 2016 for control of the club. Then Thor sell, sold his 83.3% stake to Levian and a consortium for $253 million. Thor put an estimated $163 million, including losses, into the team over six years, so he netted about 80 to $90 million on the sale. Another recent example of an owner selling for far more than he paid for an MLS team is Andrew Hopman, who paid a reported $35 million in 2007 for the Chicago Fire, the year it was valued by Forbes at $41 million. He sold the team over the past couple of years in a series of transactions, for a reported total of $321.6 million. It's unclear how much Haltman specifically netted on the sale. Forbes last year valued the fire at $245 million, and in 2017 estimated that the club, the team, operated at a $12 million loss. DC United financial data from the 2016 season obtained by The Athletic, shows a $9.4 million net operating loss on $12.5 million in total revenue and $22 million in expenses that season. However, the balance sheet also shows a $4.3 million payment from MLS sum that helps reconcile the budget and ease the strain on cash flow. The club records show ended the year with positive cash on hand. Now, there's been speculation that that MLS sum payment of around $4.3 million is, is this payment that goes out to the owners as part of new investor operators joining the league. So they each get a cut. You have to buy, when you, when you buy a share, you're having to basically 
pay them off a portion to get access to the trough. The balance sheet isn't necessarily a crisis for owners because the teams overall have gained significant value. Plus, they can write off losses on their taxes. All those losses do is give the owners tax write-offs for the rest of their income. At the Sacramento Republic expansion announcement, Burkle said it made sense to him to get involved with Republic FC, which has been a second division club since 2014, because it would be a major league team in the capital city of the state that contains the fifth largest economy in the world. He also talked about profitability and said his strategy is to give fans an experience that will create spending, i.e. a fun time and good soccer to drive the bottom line without being solely focused on profits. On any investment I look at, you have to look at anything you do as if you're going to own it forever. If you give the fans the right experience, if you build a new facility, if you give them quality experience, you'll get the loyalty from the community and the profits will follow. I don't think you can let profits drive your decisions or you'll make bad decisions. Burkle owns LA-based the Ukaipa Companies, private equity and venture capital firm. I'm sure I butchered that name and I apologize. And among his co-investors in the MLS team are Hollywood film producer Matt Alvarez and Kevin Nagel, a minority owner of the NBA Sacramento Kings and the chairman and CEO of SAC Soccer and Entertainment Holdings. All of which is to say that Burkle known knows as well as anyone how as a league MLS is structured differently as a business compared to the four other major U.S. pro leagues. MLS is a single entity business, meaning team owners buy a stake in the league itself that allows them the right to operate a team in a designated market. Teams are not franchises. The league pays the players and centrally handles many administrative things like insurance for all teams. Part of the intent of using such a structure to launch MLS back in 1996 was to contain costs. The league's teams keep a share of local revenue, 70% of ticket sales, money generated from stadium concessions, parking, local sponsorships, and a majority of player transfer fees. The league also shares revenue, national sponsorships, broadcast rights deals, and online sales. MLS... MLS's cost containment measures have benefit owners but serve to artificially depress player wages. There was no free agency within Major League Soccer until before the 2016 season, and though it exists in name now, its parameters are more restrictive than other U.S. leagues. Players have a union and collective bargaining, bargaining agreement, but without free agency, as the other major U.S. pro leagues enjoy, player salaries remain much lower by comparison. It's all intentional. And this, and, and, and this major league soccer uh, players union is pathetically weak. It is pathetically weak. MLS's top paid player this season was LA Galaxy's Zlatan Ibrahimovic at $7.2 million, the same as New York Yankees reliever Dellen Batansis, who ranks 182nd in MLB salaries this season. The average MLS salary is $345,000 for a senior roster non-designated player, according to the MLSPA. By contrast, Major League Baseball's minimum salary was five hundred and fifty-five thousand, and the average was four point three million. But that that doesn't tell the story. The average MLS salary of three hundred forty-five thousand. If you go and you look at how the roster is broken down. you find that that number is severely inflated. A better metric would not be average salary, but median. 
If if it was the median salary, that number is even lower, and it's pathetic. MLS also has a modest TV audience compared to other pro leagues, but ratings continue to grow as younger Americans show interest in the game at all levels. That is not true. Ratings have been decreasing for Major League Soccer. We've talked about it on this show. Ratings are going down. The league is falling in television ratings. They're getting a fewer and fewer share in in viewing. Not more. The numbers are going down. They're declining, not growing. MLS average attendance this season was 21,310, which placed ahead of both the NBA and NHL indoor leagues. Whoop-dee-doo. And the 21,000, what does that mean? Because Major League Soccer doesn't count butts and seats. It's not turnstile clicks. It's just a number that they pick. They'll use a metric called tickets distributed. If I have 20,000 seats, 6,000 tickets sold, I could print out the rest of the tickets and literally go drop them in a parking lot somewhere and claim a sellout. That's how berserko, bizarre these metrics are. It It's all fluff. Major League Soccer attendance numbers are the same level of propaganda as U.S. Soccer yesterday using the hashtag World Class DA. I mean, we're talking about propaganda on the level of absurdity. While the league's major revenue deals remain dwarfed by what the other major leagues collect, MLS still has some tidy sums coming in. Its kit deal with Adidas pays it $90 million annually through 2024. Now, let me put that in perspective. The entire league has the Adidas deal at $90 million. The television deal, $90 million that is shared with U.S. Soccer. But I want to go back to this Adidas deal, $90 million for the entire league. Major League Soccer, as an entire league, has a deal with Adidas that is only a little bit higher than Manchester City or Manchester United's kit deal. New Balance is paying Liverpool $45 million a year. One team. Adidas is paying 90 for the entire league. These are not major revenue deals. These are pennies on the dollar. Now, if every team in the league was getting $90 million, They'd be at the top of the heap. That's the potential for an American soccer league on the level of La Liga, uh, on the level of the Premier League, on the level of the Bundesliga. We could get there. When I say American soccer could be and should be the greatest soccer league in the world, I believe we can get there. We have that potential. But Major League Soccer is not going to allow us to get there on purpose. Our uh, our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. Hope to get back into uh, this article um, on the next show and, uh, and, and really continue to dig into this. But um, it, it's, it's just... It's just bizarre where we are, um, for sure. And uh, in, in for all that people proclaim MLS has done to help the sport, there's just as much, if not more, that's been detrimental to the sport. And and Soccer United marketing, the relationship with U.S. Soccer, the the board infiltration of Major League Soccer, and the power that they hold. 
They are the single largest individual voting power in U.S. soccer. It is it is not good for the sport. It's unhealthy. It's untenable. Uh, it is not good for the growth of the sport for sure. Um, but we will get we will try to get into that uh, in in tomorrow's show. Our sponsor is Charity Water, as I mentioned. Go to charitywater.org to uh, to join that movement to join the story of providing clean drinking water to people all over the world. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Monday, November the 4th. This year is just flying by. I saw a lot of uh, friends of mine on Facebook celebrating midnight uh, October 31st turning to November 1st. And it, and it wasn't uh, daylight savings. And I was like, what is going on? And, I, and then I realized this they were celebrating that they could officially transition into the Christmas season. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, the TVs in my house are going to be uh, on Hallmark movies for the next uh, seven, eight weeks. Um, you know, just thoughts and prayers sent them this way. Um, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, uh, picking back up on the story we were talking about at the very top of the show, um, Forbes did a, a feature on uh, La Masias celebrating 40 years of being Barcelona uh, at FC Barcelona's heart, heart of the story. Um, La Masia translates to the farmhouse in Catalan, and uh, it, it originally was a farmhouse. I mean, this wasn't like a contrived name uh, or, or so on and so forth. I mean, it, it literally was a farmhouse. Um, and it is, uh, it is the name for FC Barcelona's Youth Academy, and, uh, and Spain's first soccer residence was chosen because Amasia is the building tied closely to the land around it. For the past 40 years, La Masia has served as the epicenter of FC Barcelona, not only pumping life into soccer, but also basketball, handball, roller hockey, and futsal. For us, La Masia is one of the most important things we have in the club in our entire history, said FC Barcelona board member Javier Villajoana. Who oversees youth football? It's a very important aspect of the past, today, and will be in the future. Uh, this is from an article from Forbes. I, w- I just wanted to close the show. Uh, I, I don't want to get a ton into this, even though you know Barcelona is my favorite club in the world, and uh, I've been there a few times. Um, you can check out the the article on Forbes.com. It's uh, it's by uh, Michael Larey. I believe that's uh, how you pronounce it, a contributor at Forbes. Uh, the title of that article published on November the 3rd is La Masia celebrates 40 years of being FC Barcelona's heart. Um, and you can, you can read through the entirety of the article and it looks at the, you know, the history, um, the talents that it has churned out, etc. cetera. Um, I want to, I really want to get into 
what I mentioned a second ago about U.S. soccer after the failures of the U-17s, the very next day are tweeting about having a hashtag world-class DA, world-class development academy. It's players that it produced. It just had the the worst performance in a U-17 World Cup in quite some time. Our, our program, our development academies, have helped us to not only fail for the last Olympics, but the last two Olympics, and we are about to undergo um, qualifications for the 2020 Olympics. So we will see whether we finally make the Olympics or, or if we miss three in a row. In addition, we missed the first World Cup since... 1986 and on the on the men's side here and uh we've had failure after failure with the u.s men's national team including recently losing to canada for the first time in 34 years when fc barcelona touts the the success of la masia it does so because of what has happened, not what they hope will happen. And this is an important distinction. As much as we want to go around and we want to talk about our ideas and our vision and we want to, we want to be a good salesman of our vision and our dream, we may want to become world class. And I would hope that that is the goal of every team in this country is to develop world-class players. That would be fantastic. We cannot go around acting as if we already are when we're not. That is the problem. For Barcelona to, to say hashtag world-class La Masia, they have names that they can then put forward to say, argue with this. And the list is long. And in that list, you will find incredible players, some of the greatest players to ever play the game, and one name that I consider to be the greatest of all time, who still wears the number 10 at Barcelona. All products of La Masia. Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, Busquets, Piquet, and the list goes on and on and on. Our development academy doesn't have a name, much less that collection. We have got to stop going around pretending, in, in essence, lying. I mean, if you look at it from an ethics standpoint, is it illegal? No. But is it false advertising? Is it ethically not up to par? Yes. We are not world class. Our development academy is nowhere near being world class. Eric Winalda talked about during the 2018 presidential election, we will never have elite level football in this country as long as we have an elitist system. The elitist system is a gatekeeper system. It's homogenized, arbitrary access, and even if you get into a major league soccer academy that are just in the last few years finally becoming fully funded, even if you get into one of those, you have had to pay a lot of money to get access into the system to get to that place where you have been able to get a spot in an MLS Academy. American soccer, it needs a moment of realism, honesty, a look ourselves in the mirror moment of truth. We are not world-class, but we could be. 
We are not excellent, but we could be. We're not the best, but we could be. In an effort to try to create a a scenario where where there are standards where we can proclaim excellence where we can say this is improved or we've achieved growth or whatever arbitrary standard or metric or number that gets tossed out in an effort to reach that we have gotten it all wrong we've told families at 8 9 10 years old Driving three or four hours to a game is acceptable. It's absurd. We've told parents that pay us to coach your kids because we know better. But do you? Are you producing world-class players? Are you developing competent players? We have parents who want to do right by their kids all over this country, but they don't know where to start. If I were U.S. soccer, I would just buy a copy of Tom Byers' book, Football Starts at Home, and give it to every family in this country that has kids under the age of six and say, here's our investment in the future. I would go into every state and create, as John Townsend talked about, centers of excellence and allow kids to come in without paying fees to train and see who the best of the best are. I would be trying to find more opportunity and more access, not less. Our academies are not world-class, but they could be. They should be. Just like I think American soccer could be. We could be the greatest soccer country on earth. And we could get there really fast. People think it's, it's going to take forever to get there. I don't believe that. I believe we have so much untapped and pinned-up potential and demand that with good leadership, American soccer could explode. We've seen in the last two decades how much technology has impacted our lives, how big these companies have become. And you don't think we can do that in American soccer? You're crazy. You're crazy. We can get there, and we can get there so much faster than the Federation or Major League Soccer wants you to believe because they have a plan, and that plan includes them keeping control And in order to do that, everyone else must be subservient, period, plain and simple. Thanks for watching the show today. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. You can check me on Twitter or Instagram at danielworkman. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later.